We all love Christmas, the songs, the scenes, the traditions. But the story can become too familiar. What if this year we took a look with fresh eyes and Christmas became less sentimental and more sensational? Join us today as we look at Christmas Restoried. This morning we light the first candle of Advent, the candle of peace. As we anticipate Christmas, let us remember the birth of the Prince of Peace. Let us remember our need for a Savior to save us from our sins and give us peace with God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And together, suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The Bible reminds us that true peace comes from the Spirit of God dwelling within us. The Prince of Peace gives us his peace, the kind of peace which is different from the world. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. We say together, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. On this first Advent morning, may we invite Christ afresh to give us his gift of peace. We say together, let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, since as members of one body we are called to peace, and be thankful. Um, this Christmas marks a huge first for the Barden family. For the first time ever, we will have an artificial tree. Every year previous, we've gone out into the wilds of the Canadian Rockies, axe over the shoulder, snowshoe on the feet, hunting for our tree. We've done it in minus 30, no exaggeration. We've done it when the snow is so deep, the trees look like pillows, and you have to knock a foot off only to find the spindly little thing that Charlie Brown wouldn't even take home. And yearly, our hunt for the Christmas tree would inevitably lead to these family squabbles. Every year, every single year, fights broke out over finding a tree that was good versus finding a tree that was good enough. Some of us hunted for trees like the sanctity of Christmas itself depended on finding the right tree, and the others in my family were like, my toes are freezing, just get that one. And that's what happened every year. But that's all done now. 
No more tree hunting, no more arguments over Charlie Brown imperfections because we bought a fake tree. Okay. <laughs> Apparently a lot of love for the fake trees in the room. Um, you're not going to like where the sermon's going to go here in a minute, so all right. We bought out-of-the-box, evergreen, plastic predictability. That's what now fills our living room. And there's some pluses to it because you know exactly what you're getting when you pull the fake tree out from underneath the stairs. You're getting the same thing as you had last year and the year before, which is kind of an apt holiday metaphor. Maybe Christmas feels like that for you. Predictable, familiar, nice, but missing some life. Like you come here and you know the songs. You can predict the Advent readings. You pretty much know where the sermon is going to go. And it's all so predictable. It's easy to, to kind of switch on to autopilot mode because everything in this season is so familiar. I don't just mean church in December. I mean the Christmas story itself. Like the biblical characters, the scenes. The census, the donkey, the stables, the shepherds, all so familiar. And yet each year, we pull out these familiar characters and we dust them off like an age nativity scene we set up on the table that we enjoy, but in the end, the story often feels more sentimental than sensational. And then in a month, like the tree, we'll pack it all up and put it back in the box until next year. Maybe that's an accurate description of, of your Christmas experience. I, I'd like to take a crack at changing that. Sorry. I'd like to take a crack at changing that. Like maybe this Advent... We go traipsing through the wilds of the story, not driven just by nostalgia, but by a hunt for some of the real-life implications to the claim that God has come to us. And so to do that, we're going to ask you to do four things over these next four weeks. Four responses you might say, to the incredible news that God has come. Four actions that are going to help you enter the Christmas story afresh again. And so I'm going to ask you to offer peace. I'm going to ask you to give more. I'm going to ask you to say yes. I'm going to ask you to worship fully. And those four actions, those four responses, if you do those, if you lean into them, Christmas will not feel out-of-the-box predictable. Instead, I suspect that we will experience Emmanuel, God with us, in some fresh ways this Christmas. So let me pray, and then let's jump into our first, our first call to offer peace. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we've, we've heard words spoke about your peace. We've heard your word spoke this morning about peace. We've sung songs heralding peace. 
We've hung, sung songs that have articulated our longing for peace to break into our story. And so I just ask simply that you would open up our hearts by your spirit to the Prince of Peace. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I want to tell you a true Christmas story that actually seems too unbelievable to be real. Um, a little over a hundred years ago, the Great War roared into the nightmares of human imagination. Never before had humanity witnessed that level of brutality or destruction. Uh, Ernest Hemingway called it, quote, the most colossal, murderous, mismanaged butchery that has ever taken place on the earth, end quote. And after four long years of bloodshed, millions would come to share in his conclusion. But before that, before great armies converged in France, before places like Passchendaele or Verdun became synonymous with, with the word horror or death, before the blood-soaked fields of Flanders were, were blasted into a moonscape, before that, war was actually seen by young men as, as an opportunity for adventure, a chance to forge courage and valor in young men's lives. And so at the declaration of war in 1914, men gleefully signed up. I mean, in droves, and there was an energy and enthusiasm and excitement. There was a thrill to it all. And they left home to, to bands playing and crowds cheering, expecting that in a few months after a decisive battle or two, that it would all be over that they'd come home with a chest full of medals and an army bag full of stories and adventures. But this war would not be like the ones their grandfathers fought. This war would be altogether different. As German, French, and British armies smashed into each other on the Western Front, countries were horrified to discover that they were losing more soldiers in a day than they had previously lost in entire wars in a day. And day after day, week after week, the casualties climbed to unimaginable heights because death had been unleashed on an industrial scale. Three men and a machine gun could now decimate a whole company of brave men in mere seconds. There would be no decisive moment. There would be no one-and-done battle in this war. Instead, each new morning was like a demonic groundhog day where thousands of bodies would be ripped apart and sacrificed in order to gain a hundred yards of, of shell-pocked real estate, only to lose it in the next counterattack the next day, and then only to be called out of the trench to try to go take it back again two days later. It was like insanity dragged up from the depths of hell. So within a few weeks, the idealism that men carried into war was long gone. As they settled into their trenches, resigned that they'd have to club and kill their way to peace. They'd have to bleed the enemy white before peace could come. At least that was what their generals and the politicians far from the front kept telling them. 
But then something incredible happened. The first signs that something strange was afoot came on Christmas Eve night. Soldiers in the German trenches illuminated their their trenches with candles and they set up some small Christmas trees. They began calling greetings of Merry Christmas over to their British counterparts. And cautious compliments were exchanged back and forth, right? Nervous fingers were still on triggers, eyes still alert for any trap or trickery. And then the singing started. First, the Germans sang Silent Night. And that piercing, beautiful melody just floated men's hearts out of the trenches. Like, away from the mud and the rats and the blood and the death, to a place where all is calm and all is bright, to, to a place of heavenly peace. And then the British answered by singing the first Noel as the Germans sat in raptured silence. And then multiple sources say that someone broke into O Come All Ye Faithful and the Germans joined in. Two languages, two nations, two enemies joined their voices at the invitation At the invitation to leave the trench, to leave the field of death, and to come and behold him, born the king of angels. That night, men on both sides went to sleep longing for the reality of Christmas to end the turmoil that they knew. I read that overnight, a a dusting of snow fell and blanketed the mud and the shell holes in almost like a spiritual covering. And British soldier, Private Frederick Heath, said in the morning he awoke to the greeting, English soldier, English soldier, Merry Christmas, come out here to us. He said for a time, everybody was cautious. Officers ordered their men to stay put, but then some heads appeared over the parapets with smiling faces, and weapons were put down. And men slowly crept out and into no man's land, where they stood face to face with their enemy. A member of the Scots Guard said that he was greeted with chocolate and a glass of whiskey. And food was brought out, and carols were sung, and laughter ensued as enemies became comrades, and a magical peace descended over the battlefield. And then somebody brought out a soccer ball. And the 133rd Royal Saxon German Infantry played a spirited game against the Scots Guard. The game ended in a 3-2 victory for the Germans, and this statue commemorates the event. Word spread up and down the line and more and more men put down their rifles and came out of their trenches and met in the middle ground of peace. It's estimated that two-thirds of the British line in Belgium left their fortifications and joined in. 
Think of that. Into this swirling black hole of death that was sucking more and more into the meat grinder of destruction. All of that was stopped as the power of Christmas peace took hold. Think not only of the power of that moment, think of the potential that resided in that moment. The potential for a different story, a a better story. The potential of lives saved and trauma ceased, of destruction and despair stilled. For real peace was being experienced by real enemies. And this peace was spreading across the bloodstained battlefield as more and more men embraced it. That is, until word of this extraordinary happening made its way up the chain of command and generals on both sides of the conflict were appalled by this illegal truce. This spontaneous peace that was threatening to destroy their war for peace. And so soldiers, sometimes at gunpoint, were ordered back into the trenches. You will swap bullets, not gifts with the crowds. You will throw grenades, not soccer balls at the Brits. And just like that, it was over. The war would resume for four more years. Millions more would be killed for what? The war to end all wars wouldn't. Friends, blood dries quickly. We seem to learn little from history's mistakes. And so just 20 years after that war ended, an even greater one with greater destruction and greater death would grip the world. In fact, the history of humanity is one terrible cycle of conflict, big and small, with war being the worst manifestation. And in all that time, Humanity has never bombed itself free of conflict, and we never will. The smaller size conflicts that we live in, similarly, they don't get stilled. They don't get reconciled through arguments and cutting words. They need something different, something more, something like what settled over the trenches Christmas Eve, 1914. Luke begins his Christmas story with these famous words. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, when you hear those words, you you might immediately get transported to a Christmas production with a narrator reading those words as two kids step onto the stage and bathrobes and towels on their heads and a pillow, you know, for a tummy. Because we know those words as the classic opening line of children's Christmas plays. But to those who read Luke for the first time, to those who knew the world into which Luke wrote, they knew the table was being set in that sentence for a revolution of peace. You see, Luke anchors his story in the time of Caesar Augustus. The the incomparable 
military leader, the one whose legions marched further and decimated more armies and conquered more territory than any before him. And Caesar dictates that a census is to be taken. And a census was a Roman invention designed to serve the cause of war. You know that? Like, if you want to wage war well, you need to know how many military-age men are available to your armies. And you need to know how many potentially military-age men might rise up against you in the far-flung uh, provinces or territories. And the census gave you that quantifiable data. Secondly, the biggest purpose of census was to let you know how much you could tax your people. And this was critical information because the largest portion of taxes funded the Roman army in their campaigns. And so census was an, a, a, an administrative tool to help Rome wage war. And it is ironically this tool of warfare that sets Mary and Joseph into motion, leading them to a place where the angel would proclaim to a, a war-weary land, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. On those whom his favor rests. Actually, maybe it's not ironic at all. Because it is our conflicts, both big and small, with our fellow man, as well as our species-wide rebellion against God, that led God to step into our conflict-laden lives to bring peace. You see, the Christmas story from beginning to end is a war and peace story of God changing the status quo of the inevitable and perpetual conflict God bringing a real and tangible peace into lives that we would experience on every front where there is also strife. See, this is especially poignant to me this Christmas as I see the state that our society is in. As I see the circumstances that are impacting our lives, Christmas 2023 finds the world with frayed nerves. We have wars raging in various spots on the globe. We daily, on the news, see images of streets turned to rubble with bloodied children and strewn corpses lying around like refuse. Protests and counter-protests take to the streets across the globe, siding with one side of the combatants over the other. There's so much violence, so much hatred. And then closer to home, it feels like our nation is a bag of bees that has just been shaken up. So much buzzing and so much anger. There's woke culture anger. There's anger against woke culture. There's deep political divisions that run through families and friends and communities. And of course, we're heading into an election south of the border. And so you know it's going to get ugly. The predictable outrage and the demonizing of the other will be on every 24-hour news channel for the next year. It seems like every sector of our society has its perceived enemy that it lashes out at. It's the Democrats. No, it's the Republicans. It's the Jews. It's the Palestinians. 
It's the woke mob. It's the fundamentalists. Enemies are declared. Battle lines are drawn. And we instinctively dig in and entrench our positions. And then to make matters worse, we are all influenced by social media technologies and algorithms that few of us understand that curate our own feeds to bolster our biases, to deepen our trenches, and to, to provide us all with more outrage ammunition to lob at the other side. And here's the kicker. It doesn't even matter if these grenades that we throw are true or not anymore. All that matters is that they make a loud bang. And this is our world. So much hostility. So much conflict. So much strife. It impacts countries, communities, churches, marriages, friendships. Friends, we need the peace of Christmas, the peace of Christ to fall on us afresh. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth for those on whom his favor rests, the angels proclaim. You could translate that word favor, you could translate it gracious kindness on those whom his gracious kindness rests. Let me ask you, does his gracious kindness rest on you? Is the Prince of Peace your Lord? If so, then the peace of Christ has been offered to you and you are as a recipient of it, called and empowered to bring the good news of Christmas, the peace that it creates into your story. And we do this in two critical ways. One personal and one corporate. One that focuses on us and our actions and one that focuses on God and his. Now the first way that we respond to Christmas is we take Jesus serious when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they, they will be called the children of God. The one on whom God's favor rests are his children, and God's children, the children of the Prince of Peace are peacemakers. Not just peace believers, not just peace affirmers, not just peace agreeers or receivers, but peace makers in a climate of outrage and the inevitable relational discord and fracturing that happens in all of our stories we are commissioned to be peacemakers so how do we do that well our 1914 christmas story i think gives us a good example and real life metaphor that we respond to Christmas by initiating and creating the middle ground for relationships. The Apostle Paul reminds us, he says in 2 Corinthians 10, for though we live in this world, we do not wage world as the world, we do not wage war, sorry, as the world does. 
And what he is speaking to is that we don't take our relational cues from the world, we take them from Christ. We don't go to ground and engage in conflict like our culture does. We fight for peace differently. We create the middle ground for peace. And I say this because I feel like there's so little middle ground today in our culture. Like we are so polarized. And so the first thing we need to do is climb out of our trench to make ourselves vulnerable by putting down the weapons of outrage and take the first steps into re-offering relationship rather than battle. To choose intentionally to move toward those we could easily fortify ourselves against. Paul says this, that God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's as if God is reconciling the world to himself through us. What Paul is getting at is that in God's work of of bringing peace and bringing the truth of Christmas to percolate into the lives of real people, we're not passive in this whole thing. We don't just sit back as spectators saying, I hope he does it sometime. It's as if God was reconciling the world to himself through us. Our peacemaking steps is part of a broader front of what God is doing to bring healing into the world. And so we are summoned, beloved, by Christ into no man's land. Not to duel it out, but to take the initiative for peace in a climate of hostility. And so we climb out of our fortified, our ideological trenches. We climb out of our political trenches, our protective because, you know, you once offended or hurt me trench. We climb out of those. Because peace requires one person to extend the olive branch of truce, of Uh, the olive branch of reconciliation, of relationship, of forgiveness. And this is the critical first step in peacemaking. And so let me ask you, as we move towards Christmas, who are you estranged with? Like, who are you feeling conflict? When you think of the other, on the other side of no man's land, in their trench, who do you think of? Is it a family member that that time and turmoil has caused you to stop speaking to each other? That you've emotionally fortified yourself from them? Is it a coworker who has undermined you? Maybe he's gossiped about you so that when you see them, you give them the cold shoulder or worse. Who are you tempted to snipe at with malice or contempt? The call of Christmas, the call of Christ, is to leave the safety of your separation and to step into the plains of peace, to extend your hand to the other trench. This act moves the peace that was proclaimed by the angels off of the Christmas play script and into the work of our actual families, into the experience of our actual lives in our real-life relationships. But here's the genius of Jesus. That Jesus presses in beyond just our circumstances by calling us peacemakers. He presses into our very character 
Because effective peacemaking requires us to take off our Pharisee fatigues. To take off our religious uniforms that fit us so well. We've tailored them to ourselves for years. You know that uniform. That need to be right. That need that you have to win the debate or the argument that need you have to be justified, that need you have for retribution, that sense of your own righteousness in yourself and in your position, peacemaking requires you to step out of those fatigues and instead put on the spiritual garb of Christ. And and what is that, you ask? Well, Paul tells us, therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, put on kindness, put on humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone, if anyone has a grievance against another, we are to meet the outrage of our age clothed like this. We, we empathize with people. We listen, listen to them, not to find the soft underbelly of, of their position so we can give a cutting remark, but to understand where they're at. This posture looks for common ground to try to meet on because you value the person more than you value your position or your trench. See, if Christians today would value their neighbors more than their political platforms, we could see a revolution of peace be initiated from Christ followers that could change the fabric of the discourse in our land. We do so with humility, Paul says, and that doesn't mean that you have to compromise on your conviction. That's not what humility means. Humility means that we acknowledge that we might not be right 100% of the time on 100% of the issues. Some of you need to hear that. You are not infallible. You are not right 100% of the time on 100% of the issues. So let that humility drive you, lead you into reconciliation. And so into our unique relationships, into your unique relationships, you are called to be a peacemaker, to let forgiveness and humility, kindness and patience shape your words and shape your actions. That's the first thing that we do. The second thing that we do is we pray for peace. Peacemakers are peace prayers. Repeatedly in our sacred story, the people of God are called to pray for the peace of the city into which they find themselves. We recognize in the paradox of God's actions in the world that he has chosen to respond and work through the prayers of his people. So in the face of war and conflict, we pray for peace. In the face of a city that sees so much addiction, so much brokenness, we pray for peace. And in the circumstances where our own peacemaking efforts feel so small, and powerless to bring change, we pray for peace. 
and into the turmoil of our own hearts. We pray for peace. So tonight, I'm going to invite you to join me. Hopefully, I'll be all cried out by then. So I'm going to invite you to join me. And we're actually going to spend some time praying to, to engage to this Advent season by, by coming before the Prince of Peace and asking him to work peace into these specific areas I'm going to guide you through. It's going to happen 6.30 tonight in the Fellowship Hall, so I invite you to come back and join with us. Let me invite the band up. Friends, let me remind you what Paul said. We do not wage war as the world does. And you know why we don't? It's because we don't need to. You see, because Jesus walked into the no man's land of Calvary and he stood there unarmed before the trenches that our sin had dug, separating us from God, from each other, and all down the line, on both sides of the trenches, humanity, we opened up on him. We unleashed our weapons of hate and destruction on him so that his body was maimed, his soul torn, as the angel stood in horror and grief. He was bled white so that peace would mark those on whom his favor rests. He gave up his own infinite life to redeem ours, to save, uh, to save us from the powerful forces at work, to entrench us into our position, to divide us from others. He gave up his infinite life to call us into peace. Shortly, we're going to invite you to take the elements and to remember his sacrifice. We do so mindful that we broke his body and we spilled his blood and he gives us peace. So this Christmas, might the spirit of God breathe new gospel life and new gospel call into the better angels of our nature. Might you hear his voice call you out of your trench to offer Christ peace to the relationships that need it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mission on which your Son was sent that, that had its first foray into victory at Bethlehem we're born that night, the Word as flesh, the Lord of light, the Son of God, the one whom demons fear, the one of whom angels sing. Hallelujah, a child is born to us. A son has been given. And through him, you will restore, you will heal, you will liberate, you will free us from our trenches. You will free us from our hostility towards you and towards our brother. And so we ask that as we partake in these elements in a very real way, that we will, we will feel the physicality of your gospel. 
and we will hear afresh your call to be broken bread and poured out wine to a world needs to, to imitate Christ and to offer ourselves as peacemakers. We thank you that in this war that you defeated our greatest enemies of sin, Satan, and death. That this event shakes the earth. This event will define history. And we thank you so much that because of you, not because of us, you have let your gracious kindness, your favor rest on us. And as we remember this and partake together, might you move us into your story. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.